Are we experiencing a fundamental shift in the world economy from relative predictability and stability to greater uncertainty and volatility? And what does it mean for policymakers? Clearly, a much more complex time. And that requires steady hands on the policy levers. Stormy Waters is how the International Monetary Fund is describing the year ahead as it gathers for its annual meeting here in Washington, D.C. As the world tries to claw its way out of the COVID-19 pandemic and grapples with the conflict in Ukraine that only appears to be getting worse, the challenges are immense, and we haven't even mentioned inflation yet. You're listening to Business Extra. I'm your host this week, Willie Lowry. Joining me is The National's Editor-in-Chief, Mina Aloredi, to discuss the IMF's depressing forecasts and what it means for the Middle East. Before we continue, a friendly reminder, if you enjoy the show, please do subscribe on your preferred podcasting app. Mina, there's no way around it. Any excitement about the IMS annual event returning to in-person was tempered by what can be only described as a truly discouraging outlook. It was interesting how sitting here in Washington, D.C. and attending the briefings with both the managing director of IMF, Christina Gorgieva, and the head of the World Bank and president of the World Bank, um, David Malpass, that both of them were like, whether we are actually and technically in a recession or not, for most people, it's going to feel like a recession. And that was the point, that don't use the technicalities. We are in dangerous waters now, and you need to act now. And it was very interesting to hear how Kristalina Gorgieva stressed the point of you need action now. It was also interesting that we heard from Jihad Azor, who is head of the Middle East and Central Asia, that even though for the Middle East North Africa region, it doesn't feel as bad, it's also coming. And so his message was also that this is all going to start picking up pace quite quickly. And acting now is important, but also acting in a united fashion, which is difficult given how polarized the world is at the moment. Yeah, that, I think that was a big part of it. There has to be a cohesive response to, to what we're, we're seeing. What were your biggest takeaways from Gorgieva's briefing here in Washington? This was a, a briefing in a way to, to set the tone for the, the rest of the annual meetings. And inflation was the big title. And she specifically said a lot can be done to tame inflation using monetary policy tools. Because while they are warning you need to act now, she was giving a message that this is not inevitable. There's a lot more we can do. And, you know, perhaps for countries that are really struggling, be it Lebanon, be it Sri Lanka, you know, there are 90 countries that are vulnerable to economic woes. There's still a lot that can be done. And so that was, uh, for me, a real message. And I think that also what she said, that inflation is a tax on lower income parts of society, that we have to remember that for people who perhaps 6, 8, 10% increase, is uncomfortable, might dip into their savings. But those who are vulnerable, that means they can't survive. We cannot possibly allow inflation to become an, a runaway uh, train. Bad for growth and bad for people. Bad, as, bad especially for poor people. Not only is it the poorest countries who are going to be most affected, but the poorest people within those countries. It's kind of, it's just 
and in essence, it feels so unfair. But she did mention that, you know, it was going to be these countries that are going to be hit hardest. But you mentioned a really good point because she kind of had this, this ethos of the world needs to react and it needs to react firmly and yet not overreact, which is kind of a, a difficult balance to, to get. And I think that is stemming from the fact that they're looking also for stability. And, you know, this, this message that she said, you know, we don't know if we're in a new era, that we're shifting from predictability, stability, we act in certain ways and we see, you know, the knock-on effect, or are we going into uncertainty, greater instability, and not being able to react in time for what happens? Now, of course, let's not forget, the Ukraine war is a big part of this, but so is COVID-19. And there is a sense of, you know, we came out from pandemic, we didn't even have time to think about what lessons have been learned. This is the first time, again, people are meeting in person in Washington, there's a lot of excitement. COP27 is around the corner in Egypt, and there's a sense of, okay, we have to think of climate, we have to think of inclusion, we have to think of digitization. The reality is everyone's dealing with inflation and thinking about how to get through this winter. Yeah, I mean, and, and this winter is really going to be key. I was listening to a session yesterday with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, and that's the big question in Ukraine is, is finding the money for, for heating and, and, and for energy going forward. But that's also, you know, of course, it's, it's an avalanche effect, right? That's going to be felt throughout Europe. And that's quite interesting also, because one of the questions that was posed today by, one, by a journalist was that actually Ukraine is getting a lot of funding. Is it taking away funding from us? And you're right, because Ukraine does need that support and does need that funding. But on the flip side, how much is it taking away from other countries? And that's concerning. I mean, again, we heard from um, the manager director of the IMF that apparently $90 billion in 18 programs have been um, utilized since the Ukraine war started. And now there are 28 additional requests. And so this is, you know, the impact on Ukraine is terrible, countries that are immediately affected, and now you're getting the knock-on effect. And again, there are countries that also have money. But so liquidity, it's interesting. Some people are saying liquidity is becoming a problem, but up until very recently, liquidity wasn't the issue. It's being risk-averse. And so countries are saying, we hold on to what we have because we don't know what's around the corner. And, and that's another message that we heard from Masoud Ahmed from the Center for Global Growth. And he was speaking at a Carnegie Endowment event in D.C. and said, we need the major multilateral institutions like the IMF and the World Bank to take risks, to really start giving out this money and supporting and doing programs um, that can help stave off the worst. Because some of this, once it starts having a knock-on effect, it's going to be much harder to pull back from. And Jihad Azur actually echoed that same sentiment earlier today as well at when he was giving his briefing that, you know, yeah, the big countries need, they need to take risks. Staying in the region, you asked the managing director about really the historic uh, maritime agreement between Lebanon and Israel. Let's have a listen to, to what she had to say. Let's celebrate when there is something to celebrate. And this agreement is a reason uh, to celebrate, but it would only materialize uh, as a source of growth uh, and opportunities for Lebanon uh, if we are to have a um, um, clear commitment on a political level to work for the stability of Lebanon. And I would appeal uh, to everybody who is in the high corridors of power in Lebanon uh, 
to put your country, your people first. You know, she wasn't really, I felt that she wasn't able to fully commit to kind of the minutia of what needed to be or what needs to be done in Lebanon. Perhaps that's because it's immense. But, you know, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I mean, the agreement hasn't been officially signed off by the Lebanese. But even if it is, I mean, they still need to explore whether there is oil and gas. And, you know, I think everyone's been so excited about the possibility that there's suddenly going to be some miracle that can um, help the region. But the reality is we still don't know what's happening there, and it will take several years. That's one. Two, the wider question, and to your point, is that it's really hard to commit to what could happen in Lebanon that does have runaway inflation. And we see this, you know, we're talking about 200% inflation. Um, We see this at a time when there is zero political will to deal with the realities in the country. And, you know, at these sorts of meetings and briefings, on the record, officials are very polite. To have the managing director of the IMF almost scold the leaders of Lebanon and say, can you think of your people? That is as extreme as she's going to be able to get. But it was a very clear message that there is nothing we can do. We've told you the program. There are reforms that have to happen and you can't have a political vacuum. And of course, we don't even know if there's going to be a new president sworn in. Yeah, no, she was. That's a, that's a good point. She, she did, in a in, you know, not so discreet way, scold uh, Lebanese politicians and urged them really to think of the people. That was an interesting point. And, you know, Let's talk a little bit about the kind of broader forecast for, for, for the MENA and Gulf regions. You mentioned earlier, not as discouraging as, as the rest of the world, but still, it's, it's going to be a tough year. I mean, the expectation is there's going to be 3.6% growth next year for the region, which is better than the average that we're looking at being to 2.5%. But the region is a very broad stroke. You know, the the oil-producing countries, even that term isn't fair because you can't compare oil-producing countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE with Iraq and Libya, right, which are oil-producing, but completely politically dysfunctional. And so there is concern about that. Um, The expectation from the IMF is that in the low-income countries in the MENA region, growth is going to be at 0.8%. Again, coming out of COVID, you need growth to be at 6 to 8% to try to recover from what happened. So these are really scary uh, figures. But also, you have the most vulnerable in those countries. We heard also here in Washington about how, you know, a quarter to a third of young people in the region are inactive. And that's a new term. I'm actually pleased with the term. I mean, it's a terrible situation, not pleased with the situation. But it's a good term because it's about neither an employment, nor an education, nor actively participating in society. And that is something that we've heard about time and time again, but now it's becoming chronic. And once it becomes chronic, the societal, political, developmental problems that that leads to are really hard to plan for. Yeah, those, those kind of, they, they fester, right? And, and they're insidious. And, and from a policy perspective, it's really hard to, to kind of to change that tide. And Masoud Ahmed, who you referenced earlier, you know, had a really good point where he spoke about the people who feel like they belong and, and those that feel like they don't. But from a policy perspective, how do you even begin to kind of get those people in gear and, and feeling like they're part of that system? Well, it's about 
taking those measures that allow people to have accessibility. And the term he used are the insiders and the outsiders. And again, this is a, a maturing of the conversation because before you'd hear about elites and non-elites, and this isn't so much about elites and non-elites. Of course, the elites are part of the insiders and their centers of patronage become that insider status. But it's the idea of if somebody falls out of the system, then they're an outsider. It is becoming so difficult to break into the system and become an insider. But I would say that's becoming a global phenomenon. And someone who is an outsider because either they are different politically or societally or so forth, that's becoming more and more of a problem. And so you have to take measures. So one of them, for example, is, you know, ending corruption. So making sure that if you go to apply for a passport or a birth certificate or, you know, just things to be within the system, that it's doable, that there isn't uh, somebody who's going to extort you and make you pay be it $10, $100, $50 that, you know, poor people can't afford. And so you have undocumented people for something as simple as you can't have access to documents because there's some corrupt official, low-level official extorting you. And many, many, many other examples. So I think there, there are things that can be done. And at the heart of them is accessibility and opening doors for people to come in and be part of the system rather than to be outsiders. Yeah. And, and you know, we're going to, I'm going to shift gears because we're, 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 approaching that time. But obviously, OPEC's decision to cut production by 2 million barrels, you know, made huge waves here in Washington at the beginning of the week. What about at the actual annual meeting itself? Is this something that was kind of discussed? And, and if so, how? It's been quite interesting that politically in Washington, D.C. and in the Biden administration and Congress, this has been a big talking point. Uh, on the record and in briefings and in public statements, the IMF, the World Bank, the IFC, the international um, you know, financial organizations, at least in their opening statements, they didn't really talk about it. I mean, they talked about food security, energy security. They didn't really talk about it. But in all the side conversations, in every official you bump into, in every minister, they want to know what's going on. They want to know what is the impact. But when you speak to the econ economists and the financial uh, analysts, they say that this is much more political and it's much more about perception than actually having a knock-on effect. And that price stability, what we were talking about before, is actually something that OPEC often works towards. And you do need price stability. And you want to make sure that you don't have oil prices dipping too low or getting too high. And so, so there wasn't concern economically from OPEC Plus's decision. It seemed very much like what is going to be the political fallout and how will the Biden administration react? Exciting time, certainly, to be here in Washington. Thanks so much for joining me, Mina. Uh, thanks for listening to all of you for uh, this edition of Business Extra. We were produced by Arthur Edison, Gully Burroughs, and Thomas Smith.